This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship, that we are filled with the Spirit and ready to study God's Word. It is God the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand the things of God's Word, to see how they apply to our lives so that we can relate the principles of doctrine to our thinking and to all the different aspects of our life. And this is the unique feature and remarkable feature about the church age is that every single believer has the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit and can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what is the, along with the Word of God, one of the two sources of power for the believer in this age. So let's begin with a few minutes of silent prayer, the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the privilege that we have to gather together as a body of believers around Your Word and to have this type of fellowship where the focal point is Your Word, for that is true biblical fellowship. Father, we thank You for the perspicacity of Your Word, that it shines as a searchlight throughout our soul, illuminating every single thought, that we might bring every thought captive for Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study Your Word and continue this particular study in James, we pray that you can, you will strengthen our understanding of how to solve the problems and adversities in life through your grace provision through the stress busters. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 3, James chapter 3 verse 16. We continue our study of James and how to handle trials and testing and persevering in times of testing so that we can have a mental attitude of joy that should characterize the believer's life. Now last week we began a rather interesting sidelight. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I think that this is an important subject for us to understand and is related to this particular passage. From James 3.13 down through 18, we have a study in contrasts. The contrast is between human viewpoint thinking and its consequences and divine viewpoint thinking and its consequences. Human viewpoint thinking is described in verses 13 through 16. It's based upon arrogance. And we have seen that there are four arrogant skills begins with self-absorption. You begin to think and focus more upon self, more upon your own ideas, more upon your own experiences, and you become the center of life, then that mental living, that mental focus, works itself out in life in terms of self-indulgent behavior patterns. Self-indulgent behavior patterns then lead to self-justification. You begin to justify your actions. That in turn leads to a, a, the more arrogant you are, the more divorced you become from reality. So the fourth arrogant skill is self-deception. You begin to distort reality and to interpret reality within your own subjective grid. And this then leads to further self-absorption. So you see the development of a wicked cycle. Now, arrogance is the core of all human viewpoint thinking because arrogance is a focus on self. 
And when we think about and we examine the various modes of thinking throughout human history, there are basically three. The first is rationalism. Rationalism looks to human reason as the final answer for everything. Human reason then becomes the ultimate authority in life. Historically, this has been exemplified in the philosophical systems of Plato and René Descartes, among others. Then you have empiricism. Empiricism puts the emphasis on experience. The ancient Greeks' empirical philosophy was first developed by Aristotle and then in more modern times during the Enlightenment, people like John Locke, Barclay Hume, developed empirical thinking. And then the third system of thinking is really on the basis of an authority. And this we see as revelation, that God, on the basis of His authority as the Creator of the universe, has revealed Himself to man and has disclosed to man the nature of reality. We have everything we need to know. Now, what role does faith play in this? Well, faith is, the, is believing something to be true. And faith is at the very core of every system of human thought. For example, in rationalism, the ultimate underlying assumption is faith in human ability to reason clearly. That man on his own, through his own thinking, can come up with basic first principles and then on the basis of those, argue logically to various conclusions. But those first principles are never proven. They're just assumed. That's the role of faith. Same thing with empiricism. Faith is in man's ability to interpret his experiences, the sense data that he accumulates, and that somehow man on his own can properly interpret all of the data that comes to him through his senses. So faith is at the core of everything. It, remember, faith itself is non-meritorious. Everybody exercises faith. The merit is in the object of faith. So when we come to the third system of human knowledge, which is authority, it depends on what authority we're looking at. And when the object of faith is the revealed Word of God, then we have knowledge of absolute truth, which in itself is almost a redundancy, because truth, by its very nature, is absolute. There's no such thing as relative truth. That's a logical contradiction. Now, last time, we introduced a facet related to a divine viewpoint. I'm getting ahead of myself here. The contrast we have in this passage is between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. The Scriptures classify all human viewpoint as foolishness. All divine viewpoint is classified as wisdom. All human viewpoint will ultimately end up in destruction. No matter how well it might work for a while, it always ends up in some sort of negative consequence. This is what we see explained in verse 14. Its origin is in arrogance. If you have bitter jealousy, which flows from, of course, and we saw in our study of bitter jealousy that this is the result of self-absorption, Disappointment that things haven't turned out the way you think they should. Disappointment that you haven't received the things in life that you think you should receive. Someone else has, so you become jealous of what they have. And then you become bitter in your soul in reaction to the fact that you don't have these things. Selfish ambition. This is also a fruit or a work of production of the sin nature in Galatians 5. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is... Operation arrogance in your mental attitude. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This is self-deception. It is a rejection of truth. Rejection of absolutes. 
Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, this is the mental attitude status, mental attitude sins, sins of emotion, sins of arrogance. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So, if you're going, if the root is arrogance, the plant that is produced is always one of destruction. It won't work. It may work for a while, but eventually it will be self-destructive. In contrast, you have divine viewpoint. The wisdom from above, that is, has its source in God. Divine wisdom, divine viewpoint is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness. So, over here we have the seed, which is divine viewpoint wisdom, and its fruit is going to be righteousness, production of righteousness. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, last time we got into looking at the subject of human viewpoint thinking versus divine viewpoint thinking. And I made the point that in every era of history, every culture has its own way of looking at reality. Right now, the term that is used to describe the kind of thinking in our culture is called post-modernism. Post, the prefix post refers to something that comes after. So if you have post-modernism... It comes after modernism. And that would have been preceded by what we'll call pre-modernism. Now, post-modernism is the kind of thinking that characterizes our age. We ought to think a little bit about what that involves. Why is that important for us as believers? Well, let's look at a couple of scriptures. First of all, in the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 12.32 makes the comment, and of the sons of Issachar, that's one of the twelve sons, originally Issachar was one of the twelve sons of, of Judah and one of the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel, and of the sons of Issachar, men who, what, understood the times. They had a divine viewpoint framework and so they were to able to evaluate their culture, evaluate the historical trends, and were able to perceive what was taking place. The sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. So they were able then to be of benefit to the nation because they had a divine viewpoint framework and a divine viewpoint perspective for understanding what was going on at their time in history. Romans 13.11, the Apostle Paul says, And this do, knowing the time. Now, because we are believers, we have, as it were, a bird's eye view of human history. God has declared the end from the beginning. We know that all history is the outworking of God's plan from eternity past and that Jesus Christ controls history. God's plan of history we call uh, dispensations. There are various dispensations. These are periods of time in human history that are marked off by God's administration of human history. And the age in which we live now is the church age. There is no fulfilled prophecy in the church age. The church age was an unrevealed age to the Old Testament prophets, and therefore it's called a mystery. Mystery does not mean something like a mystery novel where you have a whodunit and you're trying to discover who the murderer is, but it refers to doctrine or information that has not been revealed before in history. So, Paul is talking here, and he says now on the basis of the revelation that he's given, and in fact, on the basis of the doctrine that he has explained in the first 12 chapters of Romans, he says, This do, that is in reference to application of doctrine, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. 
The background for this is the imminency of the rapture. Paul is clearly saying Jesus can come back at any time. It's time for us to wake up, get serious about our spiritual life, because Jesus could come back tomorrow, so the time is short, so we need to be involved in working out our salvation. For now, salvation, that is phase three deliverance, is nearer to us than when we believe. We need to be living out the spiritual life. Earlier in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul had issued this mandate. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That is authority orientation to God and to God's plan for our life and to learning Bible doctrine, to learning it, to assimilating it into our thinking and to making it a part of our life. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. The word translated world is the Greek word cosmos, which refers to a mode of thinking. Not just the content of thinking, but a mode of thinking. Every age, every era has its own way of thinking. You look at something a certain way, you perceive reality a certain way. This is illustrated, I think, clearly in art. You think about how the great Renaissance masters portrayed their subjects. It was, very, it was called realism. They believed at that time, in terms of knowledge, people believed there was a real objective knowledge that you could know for sure so that absolutes resided in an objective world and you could paint and portray things as they were. Now if you know anything about art and unfortunately I wasn't able to bring put together the kinds of visuals you need for this if you can ever have seen the very flat two-dimensional icons that were used and are still used Uh, that reflect Byzantine art, that reflected a view of reality that had been affected by Platonism. Platonism emphasized ideals. Now, I know that this is a real brain burner for some of you. It's been a long time since you've covered any of this in school, if at all. But in Platonism, you have a realm of ideals which we would call absolutes. And then down here we have a realm of particulars, of details. This is everyday, everyday life. Now in Platonism, reality consists in what goes on at this ideal realm. So that uh, up here, this is also the realm of, of generalities, for example, in universals. For example, when I speak of a chair, what comes to your mind is the concept of a chair. It's a universal concept. But there are particular chairs. There's the chair back in the back that is quite comfortable that Jan's sitting in and the rest of you are jealous about. There's this chair up here for, on the pulpit. There are these other chairs over here. There's all kinds of different chairs. That, there are lawn chairs. There are bar stools. All kinds of different chairs. But they all partake of the same general concept of chair. Now, in Plato's idealism, the emphasis was on what went on in the realm of ideals, and particulars were just less significant. So you portrayed things in terms of idealism, so that when you portrayed people in art, you didn't paint a particular person with their particular features. You idealized those features. So you painted them very flat, two-dimensionally, in terms of an ideal standard. And you really see that in some of the icons related to uh, the virgin and child. Then, uh, in, after uh, that was typical of that age, prior to the Middle Ages, and then when you had the Renaissance, there is a returned emphasis, because partially because of the influence of Christianity and a return to biblical Christianity in the Reformation, as well as many other factors, some biblical, some not, an emphasis on nature is having value because it is God's creation. 
so that people are valuable not because of just some ideal abstraction, but because of who and what they are. So they, they began to paint people, and when you see a painting of a virgin and child by a Renaissance artist like Botticelli, for example, you see a particular individual woman there and a particular individual child. So there's this return to an emphasis on particulars. And then, if you go through the history of art and you follow what happens in the realm of philosophical ideas and thinking at the more abstract level, you get into the 19th century after Immanuel Kant, and we'll come back and talk about him in a minute, where you have the destruction of objective knowledge. So when you think that there is objective, real knowledge out there and people exist objectively and you can know them, you paint them realistically. But then when the source of knowledge is no longer in an external, absolute, objective reality, but you shift and the source of absolute is only what's inside, you no longer know things as they are, you only know things as you perceive them, then you begin to paint what you perceive. And that gave rise to Impressionism, so that you just paint things as you see them, not as they are in themselves. Now, by the end of the 19th century, of course, you have the beginnings of Impressionism, but at the same time, there there are other movements going on and other artists, and one of the well-known artists at that time was John Singer Sargent. And there's a magnificent display of his work, a retrospective going on at the uh, uh, Museum of Fine Arts down in Boston. We went, Pamela and I went down there uh, yesterday and saw that, and it's just magnificent. And one of the incredible portraits that he did, and he was a portrait artist in the old-fashioned, there was some abstraction there, some impressionism, but mostly he painted in the style of the old masters, and just wonderful wonderful portraits and one was of a woman she was American but she was an expatriate living in France she looked like she was in her 20s at the time he did her portrait the portrait is called Madam X she's standing up she's very beautiful it's a frontal view of her body she's in a black long black velvet evening gown with uh, thin straps and she is turned her head is turned sideways so you get a profile and it's a very dramatic picture in the way they present it there at the uh, exhibition is quite dramatic. But one of the things they have as you go through these things, you have your walking tour and your uh, little cassette player that you can go and listen to the the guided tour, the audio tour as you go through the museum. And you had the opportunity to play, to punch another button and listen to what the critics had to say about various paintings at times. And you listen to the, you look at this painting, you just think it's beautiful, it's magnificent, it's wonderful, but I'm looking at it through the glasses of a late 20th century observer who has been impacted by all of the thought trends and ideas and everything that's gone on for the last hundred years since he painted that. But in the eyes of the art critic of that day, uh, it, it was horrible. It absolutely violated all of the standards of art. It was considered uh, pandering to the basis tastes of society and culture at that time. And Pamela and I were talking about it afterwards when we left, and I thought we, we both had the same comment. We just didn't understand how the critics could pan this, how they could be so devastating in their criticism. And the reason is, is we're not looking at that through their cultural glasses. And that's just an illustration of how as you go from age to age, reality is perceived different, differently by, because of the way your culture has influenced you. And most of us have been influenced in ways that we're uh, not clear about simply because of the culture that we have uh, grown up in. We have certain tastes of music because of the culture that we grew up in. We have certain tastes in clothes. We have certain values that have been shaped by our culture. And that culture is what the Bible calls the world, cosmic thinking. Now, there are some aspects of that 
that conform to the Word of God. We call those establishment principles because every unbeliever out there has to live in God's world. So at certain points, he has got to have elements of his system that are consistent with the way God created things. Otherwise, he couldn't live. Life would just deteriorate into pure chaos. And the more a worldview or culture becomes divorced from establishment truth and from the absolutes of God's, God's Word, then the more chaotic their thinking, their thinking becomes. So we look at our passage here in Romans 12. And we're told that we are not to be conformed to this world. That's not talking about actions. That's not talking about the fact that you're not supposed to uh, drink and dance and chew or go with girls that do. That's the old saying. It's probably antiquated by now. But I'm always amazed at the superficial legalism that runs rampant among Christians, that they try to identify worldliness in terms of certain overt activities And worldliness, biblically, has to do with how you think, not what you do. I remember a few years ago when I was, uh, I'd gone back to Dallas Seminary to begin work on my doctorate, and I was talking with some first-year men, first year going into their Master's of Theology program. And one of these guys was from a town in Mississippi, and he, he was a youth pastor. And he had been in an independent Baptist church, and he just got fed up with the legalism there. And in, in those churches, or churches of that type down there, uh, women always had to wear long hair. Men had to wear short hair. You never, ever, ladies, would show up in church unless you wore a dress. Absolutely forbidden to show up in church without wearing a dress. Uh, you wouldn't wear a whole lot of makeup. I, I guess they want, thought that somehow ugliness was close to spirituality. Uh, Whatever it might be, they uh, uh, had their own views such that when he was to take the youth group snow skiing in Colorado, all of the young ladies in the youth group had to wear a dress over their bib overalls. And this was in the mid-80s. I thought by that time we were way beyond this kind of legalism in this country. But that is just one of the ways, silly ways, in which Christians try to uh, avoid being worldly. And it's just, uh, they, they miss the whole thing by rendering Christianity silly and superficial in the eyes of the unbelieving world and making non-issues out of things that are non-issues. We're not to be conformed to this world. That means we're not to be influenced by the thinking that surrounds us, the philosophy of life. I had one person one time tell me, he says, well, well, I don't have a philosophy of life. I said, yeah, you do. It's a, it's a philosophy of life that you don't want to think about anything and you're just going to be rather eclectic and take whatever comes along to, to be your value system without seeing if anything is logically consistent with anything else you believe. But everybody has a philosophy of life. Most people never think about what their philosophy of life is. And it involves your value system, what's important to you. It involves how you think certain things ought to be done, how to handle money, uh, how to raise your children. All of those things are part of your philosophy of life. The sad thing is most people go through life and they just sort of pick up this idea and that idea and this other idea and they never stop and think about whether there's any sort of internal consistency or logical relationship between what's going on in their head. And so they go through life just sort of being bounced around rather than uh, going forward, learning the Word of God, letting that transfer what's in their mind so that they can begin to think the thoughts of Christ. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by what? By the renovation of our thinking. That's a better translation of the phrase from the Greek. By renovating the thinking. What's going on inside of our head. You see, when you face adversity in life, you're not much different from that soldier who's deity bopping down the trail in Vietnam and all of a sudden he gets hit with an ambush. The difference in many cases between those who survive and those who don't is the, the, was the patrol leader or the men who could think under pressure and 
applied what they were taught in training. Same thing applies whether you're in the Navy and you're out at sea or whether you're in the Air Force and you're flying a plane and all of a sudden you get hit and now you have problems to resolve. Uh, it's easy to use a military analogy because we are in combat. We are in a spiritual combat and we are in spiritual warfare. And so the adversities that we face are there as tests and they are to prepare us so that when these things come, when we are ambushed in life, we don't just fall apart and press the panic button and run around like a chicken with our head cut off, but so that we immediately stop and think in terms of Bible doctrine and the Holy Spirit if we're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, He recalls to our mind the pertinent doctrines and pertinent promises so that we can stabilize our emotions, stabilize our thinking, have inner peace and tranquility, and move forward through the adversity in a way that brings maximum glory to God. But it involves thinking. We have to renovate the thinking in our soul. Why? With the result. This is a result clause, a hina clause in the original Greek, indicating the result that you may prove that is to demonstrate in your life. And this is a demonstration in the appeal trial of Satan. This is what you demonstrate to the angels in heaven and to other human beings. You demonstrate what the will of God is. That it is good and acceptable and perfect. Because those around us think that the wisdom of God is foolishness. That's what the Scripture says. That men think the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. And when we apply divine viewpoint wisdom to our problems, then, and we have stability and tranquility, and we have uh, victory over that difficulty in life, then we move forward in life, and it is, gives testimony to men and to angels that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Then we come to another important passage in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Verse 3 emphasizes this warfare that we're in and the modus operandi of it. It's talking about walking, the same subject we've been discussing in the Galatian series, that we are to walk by means of the Spirit. And here we're taught that Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, that is, we have human bodies and we live in the world, we walk in the flesh. We do not war according to the flesh. There are specific combat guidelines and regulations for the believer to follow. If you go outside the principles of war as outlined in the Scriptures, then you're out of fellowship and you're going to fall apart and suffer defeat in the spiritual life. There are certain principles, there's a certain protocol for spiritual combat. We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It's not based on sin nature response. It's not based on human viewpoint response that emanates from the sin nature. We don't solve our problems on the basis of morality and human good. We don't utilize systems simply because they work. You see, that's part of human viewpoint thinking in our era, and it's called pragmatism. Pragmatism says, basically, that if it works, it must be right. So if we go through a life situation and we have problems and we can't handle it and everything's topsy-turvy and we're bouncing off the walls emotionally and somebody says, well, I know a real good therapist down here in Groton. You ought to go there and they'll help straighten you out. And we go in for five or six sessions and uh, they give us a little shock therapy or whatever the latest <laughs> fad is in psychotherapy, scream therapy, primal scream, or whatever it is, and all of a sudden now we feel like we can handle life again. It must have been from God, and all of a sudden we baptize human viewpoint thinking and somehow make it Christian and come up with a concept that is really an oxymoron called Christian psychology. And it's not good psychology, and it's bad Christianity. But that's pragmatism. If it works, it must be right. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Another concept that is very uh, prominent today is emotionalism. Because we have destroyed objective, the, the existence of objective knowledge and objective reality. The only way we can tell now if something is right 
is how it impacts us. And so you see this in advertising. It's designed... uh, You see the subtle changes in commercials. Watch them. You're hit with a variety of images that have all kinds of colors in them and action, but the, the underlying thought is how is this going to impact you emotionally? And think back to the kinds of commercials. Now, some of you can't think back this far because you're way too young. The rest of us, it goes back to our earliest possible memories. Remember those commercials that you would see back in the 50s? And they would appeal to to hard data that this product is better than that product because 49 out of 50 doctors agree. But you should buy cigarettes, this brand of cigarettes. <laughs> Isn't it great how things have changed? But that's, that's what they did. They gave you facts. They appealed to a certain level of logic that there was some sort of study had been done and our product is better than brand X. Just look at it. We're going to take uh, this dirty diaper and that dirty diaper and we're going to wash them and pull them out and this bleach did a better job than that bleach. It appealed to reason, to facts, to external reality. But you still find some of that today because we, have to, we live in the realm of reality so you have to appeal to facts and reason every now and then, especially when you fill out your income tax return. But most commercials now appeal to you at a much different level. It's to hit you at an emotional level. It's to create an impact so that you react at this emotional level. When you go to the store, you see something and you get it because you have been impacted a certain way from the commercial because of the music, because of the colors, because of all of the images present. And in fact, what's more important today is having an image of something as opposed to having the substance. Style is more important than substance. Cont- uh, form is more important than content. But you see the rise of emotionalism and then in many issues in life, mysticism. And mysticism relies upon intuition. And once again, you know truth or you know what's right for you not on the basis of using logic or reason or thinking out the principles, but simply sort of a hot flash response. Once again, it's how it makes you feel. How, how you think about it. That, now tomorrow you may think about it in a completely different way, but to be, today it, it, this must be right for me. And people tend to relate that to the, uh, when they get into Christianity, to this is the, the Holy Spirit convicting me or the Holy Spirit guiding me. And how do you tell the difference between liver quiver and the Holy Spirit? Or as a professor of mine in seminary used to say, you have to be able to define the difference between indigestion and the Holy Spirit. It's not how you feel on the inside. It's the objective Word of God. So in 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh from the sin nature, from the source of the sin nature, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Bible doctrine will destroy anything. It is more powerful. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Bible doctrine will destroy fortresses. Verse 5, we are destroying speculations. We, believers, are doing what? We're actively engaged in destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking captive what? Every what? Every thought. Now that really stretches the point when you think about the way a lot of people in our culture are. You have to assume that there is thought taking place. The same, it's sad to say, is true for a lot of believers. You just wonder if any thinking is really going on between the ears. We are to take every thought captive. And that's not just talking about the content of our thinking. It is talking about how we think. And so, if we are going to think about how we think, we have to be like the sons of Issachar, 
and be men who understand the times, understand why we think the way we think. And last time I began to give a historical survey, and I know that, number one, because of the paucity of decent instruction of history in our public schools, that a lot of this is brand new information for most of you. And for others of you who have studied some of this and where some of these names and some of these events are somewhat if not vaguely familiar, they are, at least you've heard the names before, you never had it put together in terms of an overall view of a Christian interpretation of history and the ebb and flow of ideas and how those ideas impacted the way people thought in the past and the influence they have on you. You see, most people who walk around the streets of Norwich, who are down there in their baggy shorts and their uh, tank tops and their old Nikes are living, breathing, walking, talking examples of Jean-Paul Sartre's existential philosophy or Kierkegaard's existential philosophy or Heidegger's existentialism or postmodern thought. They never heard of these people but they are living out the thinking of those intellectuals from three, four generations ago. And that's what happens is what goes on in academia in those ivory halls at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the Sorbonne, Oxford, Cambridge, wherever, filters its way down slowly. The students hear these ideas taught in the classroom in one decade, and the next decade they're moving into positions of power in high school classrooms, in arts and media, in politics. And so they have heard these ideas and they've absorbed them and then they go out at a much more influential level and then they begin to uh, interact from this new ideological framework and they pass laws and they develop Uh, television programs and movies that exemplify this new kind of thinking and then the people out on the street begin to absorb these ideas and this sort of thinking without ever knowing where it comes from or how, how it relates to the Word of God. So I think it's important every now and then to just step back and see uh, some of these things and where it comes from. Now last time I said that that the big dividing point historically was about the beginning of the 1600s with a man named René Descartes who was a Jesuit geometrician. Now that begins what what is called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment places a returned emphasis to human reason and experience. But this is viewed autonomously. Prior to that, and this is what is called for one big tag that covers a lot of different ideological moves during the time, the, 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 it's called modernism. Modernism places human reason and human experience at the center point for human authority and for, for human knowledge. So before that, we could call that era, for lack of a better term, Pre-modern. And that just helps us keep all our eggs together. We're ta- going to talk about pre-modern thought, modern thought, and post-modern thought. Now, pre-modern thought, we're talking about the Middle Ages, is heavily influenced by Christianity. There's other ideas floating around. There's a lot of classical ideas that go back to uh, classical philosophy, Plat- Platonism, Aristotelianism, different ideas like that. There's also a lot of uh, superstitious mysticism and and mythology that that, uh, comes to play during that time. But whether you were a biblical Christian or not, nearly everybody operated on the basic assumptions of theism. Theism comes from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and it is the belief that God exists, that God has communicated in ethics that there are absolute values 
and that God is intimately involved in human history. Everybody from the from the beggar in the street to the princes and statesmen of every nation operated on these assumptions. But things changed as there was a revolution against the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and after after the Reformation had its impact and the thinkers began to shake shake off the chains of control of, of the hierarchy of the church, they went too far. And the Reformation, the Reformation impacts Northern Europe, and in essence the Reformation is a return back to the authority of the Bible. And in the Reformation they went back to recover ancient manuscripts. What happened just before that with the onslaught of the Islamic hordes as they came up through Turkey and into the Balkans, which is why we have a Balkan problem today, just to let you know that, that history is not something that doesn't impact today. A thousand years ago, when the Muslims... Balkans and and oppressed the Serbs and the Croats. And uh, when they finally pulled out, they left everything in disarray culturally because those folks were still in a pre-modern uh, mode of thinking. They're still operating like the feudal states of, uh, of uh, Western Europe operated back in the 14th, 15th century. They never advanced in their thinking culturally or socially. And that's one reason we have the kind of problem we have today over there in the Balkans. But the Reformation went back to look at the Bible for the authority. But in the Renaissance, they went beyond the Bible and they went back to the ancient manuscripts of Greek, Greece and Rome. Because as the Muslim hordes came up from the south and the intellectuals of the Byzantine Empire fled before their, their advancing armies, they took their libraries with them. They brought the ancient documents with them. They brought the ancient Greek documents of Plato and Aristotle and many, many others. And so there was this return to, to um, the classics. In the north, they went back to the Bible and stopped there. And that had a tremendous impact on the culture and the history of northern Europe. And in the south, they went even further back and it impacted their art. They were recovering the art forms of the ancient Greeks and they discovered uh, a lot of things about sculptures and painting and, and uh, uh, symmetry, lighting, things like that and that impacted the way uh, they did their art and produced some just remarkable works of art that we still have today. But all of this is in that pre-modern period and it's covered under the term theism. But with the Renaissance, what happens is you throw off the authority of the Bible and you have the rise of what's called humanism, where man becomes the center point of his thinking, that man becomes the, the, the source, ultimate source of authority. And the way that played itself out was after you get into the 17th century and the thinking of René Descartes, we're going to construct our understanding of reality on principles of pure reason alone. Ultimately, that became bankrupt, and you had the alternate philosophy of Locke and Berkeley and Hume that was called empiricism. But human experience isn't enough. And the last of those was David Hume, and he was a skeptic because he questioned everything. And as a result of his skepticism, you have the rise right at the end of the 17th century of Immanuel Kant. So the Enlightenment comes to its fruition. It begins, the seed is planted about 1600, and it comes to full flowering, and you see the final death knell of the old pre-modern thinking when the guillotines of the French Revolution come crashing down because they're going to rewrite history and all social institutions on the basis of human reason alone and the Bible is thrown out. 
Now, modernism is really a state of mind and not a time in which you live. Because modernism places the ultimate authority in life in human reason and human experience. Now, what happens is that the Enlightenment gives birth to the rise of modern science. Even though many of the early scientists of the, uh, like Newton, for example, in fact, most people don't know this, Newton wrote more commentaries about the Bible than he did about science. Many of these men were solid believers. And the reason they studied nature is because they believed that God created everything and so it was part of man's responsibility as man to come to an understanding of how everything works in God's creation. And so their starting point was Christianity. Because if they had started, as modern scientists do, from the vantage point that everything is chaos, they never would have thought it could be understood. So everything is scientific, but science, there was a great hope that science could answer everything, but science also had a certain aspect to it that it seemed to reduce everything to cold, hard reason. And so there was a reaction There's always in the realm of ideas there are reactions. And the reaction was what was called romanticism. Think about the difference if you can. Go home and you can find some music. Listen to Bach, who is an Enlightenment musician. And you hear the, and he, he was a believer, by the way, and dedicated much of what he wrote to the glory of God. When he finished a composition, he would sign it, Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And you can listen to the hard mathematical chord structures. It's very beautiful music, but it is very structured music. And then after you listen to Bach, then take out Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and feel how it stirs your emotions and your passions. It's a very passionate music. That's romanticism. That's how it impacts. All of this thinking impacts art. It impacts music. You know, the Beatles just didn't pop out of nowhere. They're the result of ideological shifts. And if you grew up as a baby boomer in that, with that kind of music, that music helped shape the way you think about reality in that way. It's amazing. Nobody ever wants to... I can't find anything written about this because a lot of people like their... It's, when it comes to music, music is so personal, people don't want to critique it too much because it's, it challenges the very core of their being. But anyway, you have the rise of romanticism and, and romanticism emphasized emotion. Now what happens is when Kant came along, Kant says... All of life, remember back with Plato, we had ideals and universals up here that we can talk about chairs because we all have a universal concept of chair and so we have certain universal ideas we share in common and we can know what those are. And then down here we have various particulars. Up here is where God exists because He's the great universal, the great ideal, and down here is where man exists. Well, up until the time of Kant, everybody thought that you could come to an objective knowledge and understand what's up here. Kant came along and said, man can only know what he perceives. You can't see that column. You can only have your, know what you perceive is there. You can't know it as it is. So he puts a big wall between the top floor and the bottom floor. And man, the only way man ever knows what's upstairs is if he just assumes it's up there and then lives in light of that. Later on, Kierkegaard came along and called that a great leap of faith. Pure subjectivism. But this is what happens here. Immanuel Kant, you have the development of romanticism, an emphasis on emotion, an emphasis on nature. Getting out to nature, you see the paintings and they emphasize animals and the forest. There's a return to... to uh, 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 the, the uh, purity of, of native peoples. Uh, there's an emphasis on the unity of life and the children are all born free and in, innocent. There's a glorification of the past and there's a re- reaction to science and there's a reaction to civilization. 
and it's a re- emphasis to some degree on there are mystical elements. There's an element of mysticism there. One of the greatest, most influential thinkers of this time was a guy you never heard of before by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Now, Friedrich Schleiermacher is the father of all liberal theology. It all goes back to Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher said that if you want to know God, you have to have the emotion of meeting God. That's how you know truth. It's an emotion. He was a romantic right from that period. He's the father of all 19th century liberal theology. Then there's a reaction from that back to what we'll just call, for lack of a better term, materialism. This becomes championed by Darwin. Man is not... Man is, in a sense, he's part of nature, but he's this product that nature is no longer this good, wonderful, idealized environment. Because now nature is dominated by this horrible struggle exemplified in the phrase survival of the fittest, the law of the jungle. And so everything is now viewed as being pure material. You can't know anything unless you can see it, touch it, measure it, observe it. If it is beyond that, it doesn't exist. So God doesn't exist. Certain values don't exist. You can't touch or feel justice. And, and so in terms of values, you get the rise of pragmatism and utilitarianism. In pragmatism and utilitarianism, thievery isn't wrong because God said, Thou shalt not steal. Thievery is wrong because it destroys economic order. See, it's not wrong because it's an absolute. It's wrong because of how it impacts people. So if it didn't impact people, it wouldn't be wrong. You see the same thing today in the debate over whether or not to legalize marijuana or whether or not to legalize uh, prostitution, which is a so-called victimless crime. In other words, there's no longer a view of absolutes. The things are wrong only because of their utilitarian impact, only because of their pragmatic impact on people. Now, the thing is, under pure materialism, the only thing that is real and has value and has meaning is what you can measure, what you can see, what you can touch. But, but that, again, leaves us with a very empty sense of reality, doesn't it? There's got to be more than that. There's got to be meaning. Man has to have some level of significance. So, because on the basis of... you of material starting points, you can't get to meaning, you can't get to universals anymore because of what Kant taught. You can't get upstairs and know what those universals are, what those ideals are. You can't know whether or not God has objective existence. You just have to assume it's true and live that way. That's what Kierkegaard did. It was called a leap of faith, and it gave birth to a reaction that is called existentialism. The only way you know whether life has value is by doing something that brings uh, credit to your existence. But because you don't have a value system anymore, an ethical system to discern whether or not something is good or bad, it doesn't matter what you do to validate your existence. Whether you help a little old lady across the street or hit her over the head with a tire iron, there's no basis for saying one is good and one is bad. If you do either one, you prove that you exist, you validate your existence, give some meaning to your life. And so it's a very, life otherwise is very hopeless, very dark, very depressing. Read Jean-Paul Sartre and you just want to go out and commit suicide. I mean, it's very dark, depressing type of of, uh, philosophy because there ultimately is no meaning except whatever you yourself bring into, into life. So, all of this is part of modernism. It's all part of modernism. But really what happens within modernism, and another way I could chart this out, is if Descartes back here draws something like a funnel out this way, gives birth to modernism, that within the middle of modernism you have the development from Kant on of a reaction that ultimately gives birth to the 
post-modern. Because postmodernism is nothing more than romanticism, which is just, you know, the emphasis on emotional, subjectivism, mysticism, all of this, is just played out on a much grander scale and carried to a new level in existentialism. And then all of that just goes to a whole new level in postmodernism, where you have the total destruction of all objective knowledge and hope. And this is the kind of culture... Uh, we find ourselves living in. Now, I still haven't gotten to the chart that we put in the bulletin a couple of weeks ago, but it'll help you break that down. I'll come back and look at it next week. In fact, I was working on it this afternoon and didn't get an opportunity. I've revised it a little bit, but that's still still good and will help you see the comparison there. But if you look at this chart, I adapted this from a chart in the book, The Death of Truth, which is a good analysis of postmodern thought and how it's impacted various disciplines. And if you're in, in the medical profession or in nursing, anything of that nature, if you're in, in any kind of commercial venture, if you're in um, uh, advertising, anything like that, then you need to read this. If you're in law, uh, you need to read the various chapters in education because it shows how postmodern thinking has affected the the theories that under, undergird the modern thought in all of these various areas. But if you switch this around, you have th- three columns here, modernism, postmodernism, and theism. What I would do to help you understand this theism, this is really pre-modernism. And most of us, all of us, are pre-moderns. We believe in absolutes. And to modern man, modern man rejected absolutes. You can't know absolutes, you can't know truth. So we're pre-modern. We poor old Christians, we're just holding on to these antiquated ideas of the Bible and, and Christian theism. So this category over here, if I were to restructure this, I would call it pre-modernism, put that as the title, and move it over to the left column so you would see sort of the chronological flow. That in, in theism, you start off looking at man as in the image of God, that he is composed of a material body and an immaterial soul. In modernism, man began to be viewed purely scientifically. He is a material machine. The only thing that exists is the physical world, and we can only know the things that are perceived by our senses. That's the scientific methodology. In postmodernism, man is no longer viewed as being just a machine. He is now a social being. So it involves the whole culture, and we are the products of that social structure, so we're simply cogs in that social machine. Al will print up some more copies of this to put in the bulletin this next Sunday so we can, we can have them, and so that you can have them, Jim, to put out with the tapes on this. In terms of volition, pre-moderns or theists viewed volition as man's volition was diminished by the fall, but he is still a responsible creature. He's responsible for his actions. No matter what the environment is, you are responsible for every decision you make in life. In modernism, man is viewed as completely free. He's not determined by anything because there's no sin nature. Man is innocent. Man is uh, the way he is simply because that's how it, he evolved. So man is completely free. There is no God. There's no overriding authority. But in postmodernism, you are what you are because of your environment, because of your culture, whether that's culture on a small scale, you grew up in a family where your parents were alcoholics and abusive, or whether it's in a large scale and you grew up in a white uh, European background home, and so you are the most evil of all creatures, especially if you're a male. But if you're a woman, you have ameliorating factors because you've been abused for all these centuries, so uh, that's your culture. And if you're a member of a minority, then it's even, even worse. And so you are determined by your culture, and you've been abused by the white racists, and now you have to uh, exert your own culture. And that separates everything. And instead of seeing this appeal to integration we had back in the 60s where you're trying to pull cultures together. Now what you see is the different minorities want to emphasize their minority status and you have an even more deadly segregation taking place. And the technical term for this is called um, multiculturalism. 
and it's a dominant thought pattern in much of modern education. So modern man is viewed as having been determined by his culture, and free will is only imagined. You're not really free. Everything you think is determined by the society, the social construct around you. In terms of reason, as a theist, we believe that reason, man was given reason so that he could understand everything in God's creation, but controlled by revelation. In modernism, the ultimate authority is human reason. Man can know everything. And then in postmodernism, there is no objective rationality. What's real for you, what you think is true, may be different from... You may look at something and say it's white. You may look at something and say it's black. You're both right. You may look at something today and say it's right, and tomorrow say it's wrong, and you are right both times. It's inconsistent. But it's only inconsistent if you think that logic is, is important. But logic is considered evil in postmodernism. That, again, is the result of Greek thinking. The Greeks were the early Europeans, and early Euro- European thought is, is wrong by definition, so it can't be logical. So when you say that, all, that there is no universal truth, what you're just saying is there is one universal truth, that there is no universal truth. You've just uttered a logical contradiction, but logic no longer matters because logic is evil. So there is no objective rationality in postmodernism. And then in terms of our view of pro- progress, in theism we saw that everything there would be declines and advances, various trends in human history, but ultimately everything's on a slight decline until Christ returns. Modernism was very optimistic. We, man was advancing through science and reason, of course, until science and reason produced World War I and the mustard gas attacks and all the horrors of modern warfare. And then you had... A uh, little slippage in human optimism. And postmoderns view progress as a code word for domination by European culture. So we'll expand this a little bit, but last week and this week I just wanted to give you a little bit of an understanding of where our times are, how, what the human viewpoint trends are in our culture today. And we'll see the consequences of that versus the consequences of divine viewpoint thinking in our next Bible class with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this time together and help us to think about these things and to perceive what's going on around us so that we can uh, think objectively, not be taken in by these subtle thought forms of human viewpoint thinking today, but that we can apply Your Word, we can avoid being conformed to, to worldly thinking, but be transformed by doctrine. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.